Hey guys, Dr. Greg here. And on today's episode, I dove into a bunch of questions from our users on social media with Emily, our in-office hormone wizard. We talked about everything from uh, why you probably don't want to be taking beef liver capsules to uh, the effects of coffee enemas and lots of conversation around hormones. So if you are concerned about hormones or call yourself a hormonal hot mess, this episode's for you. All right, guys, Dr. Greg here, and on today's episode of The Daily Dose with Dr. Greg, I am with none other, the in-house hormone wizard, Emily Anderson. She is a nurse practitioner here at our clinic in Burnsville, Minnesota, and we have a whole slug of questions from our social media followers that are going to touch on hormones, are going to touch on inflammation, and all things functional medicine. So, Emily, welcome. Thank you. Here we go again. I love it. Uh, So... Again, if you guys have questions, reach out to us. One of the reasons why I think that we're so successful in the world of functional medicine um, with marketing, dare I call it, is that we we have conversations with you guys. So if you have a question online, we are we are live. We are we are answering questions. We try to be as as back and forth as we possibly can. And some of the questions are so good that we're like, hey, uh, the world needs to listen to this one. So this this uh, episode is going to be a culmination of a bunch of questions. And uh, so without further ado, let's jump in. All right. Um, in regards to hormones, the conversation of cortisol. So the question is, what happens when cortisol levels are too high and how do I regulate cortisol levels? So let's talk about high cortisol first. Yeah, so this is a really hot topic. I feel like cortisol has really come into vogue recently, and it's not necessarily just cortisol, but it's the conversation between the brain and the adrenal glands, and that conversation can happen also within the thyroid gland, and so we really have to know that there's this interconnection between everything. So when there is high cortisol, you can have increased release of glucose from the liver. It's called gluconeogenesis. So you get higher levels of glucose, which then can lead to higher levels of insulin. And then you can get accumulation of belly fat. You can have insomnia. You can have, uh, like I said, blood sugar dysregulation, hair loss. Uh, But the question then becomes, do you really have high cortisol? Because I see a lot of Dutch tests for Mm -hmm. people who say, oh my gosh, I've got anxiety through the roof. My cortisol has got to be elevated. And a lot of times it's actually low. Um, So that's why testing is so important because we can really give you a treatment plan that's tailored to you. What is your opinion on salivary cortisol versus serum cortisol measurements? Well, I'm team salivary cortisol all the way because it gives us more. Well, first of all, I love the Dutch test because it gives us data points throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So just looking at a serum cortisol that's arbitrary, it doesn't tell us where it came from and where it's going. So it doesn't tell us about your circadian rhythm or your what we call diurnal rhythm, which is how your cortisol pattern maps out throughout the course of the day. So to put that in English for a second, she uses big words. Um, So... In, in a serum test, a person goes to their draw site and hope, we typically do first morning fasting. And it's it's at this moment, what is that number? Um, just dive into the Dutch a little bit and talk about the times that they do the salivary testing that helps you understand that diurnal pattern that you're talking about. Yeah, so I usually do the Dutch Plus because it gives us an idea of how your cortisol awakening response looks like or okay. what it looks like. And essentially, it maps out your cortisol from waking. So that's the moment you open your eyes in the morning to 30 minutes after waking. And then again, at 60 minutes. Now, you also are going to check cortisol around 2 p.m. And then in the evening, 
Um, so we kind of see how the slope falls. But essentially what should happen is you should have a moderate level of cortisol in the morning. It should peak at 30 minutes, and then it should start to fall throughout the course of the day. So that cortisol awakening response essentially is a mini stress test. So it tells us how your body is responding to stressors. So it gives me an idea of what that looks like, whether you're up against a history of uh, any sort of stress. It could be physiologic stress from toxins, inflammation, micronutrient deficiencies, emotional stress, uh, mental stress, spiritual stress. It all acts as a stressor on your body. That's interesting to say. So, um, so it's five. It's five tests throughout yes. a day, right? So five tests with wake, optional insomnia. Wake 30, 62 p.m. And then the insomnia would be like at some point in time in the night they would spit in the vial and say, if "What needed. the hell's going on?" Mm-hmm. The other thing I think that's important that you said is um, the how glucose can come alongside of that. So would you expect to see, okay, so let's say that someone has high cortisol, which which we don't see a lot of. Uh, we have seen it in a couple of cases though, right? Mm-hmm. Even recently, you mm-hmm. and I shared a case and we're like, whoa, this girl's cortisol is like through the roof. Yeah. And she was, she was, um, it was actually, it was actually last night that I had a conversation with her. Uh, she's like, hey, um, about that cortisol number, here's what happened the 24 hours leading up to that time. Could that have an impact? And I was like, yeah, but probably not all the way to 36. Yeah, that was a doozy. So let me ask you this, though. Just because you don't care for it, is it like, for example, if let's say that we did a serum test at 8 a.m. and a salivary test at 8 a.m., would they at least be consistent they should be. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So really what you like, why you like salivary testing is, is you can look at that whole bell curve and just kind of see like big picture, mm-hmm. where'd you come from? Where are you going mm-hmm. and whatnot? Okay. So the thing I think I talk about with high cortisol is I'd rather see high cortisol than low cortisol, right? Because then the person is actually has the ability to make cortisol. Exactly. Going back to blood sugar though. So I would expect to see a person to have elevated blood glucose with elevated cortisol but I don't think of the same as the opposite. If we have low cortisol, we still do you still see high blood glucose? Sometimes. And it kind of depends on what happens first. Is it the chicken or the egg? So okay. so cortisol isn't always the reason for insulin dysregulation and, mm-hmm. and glucose metabolism mm-hmm. disruption. Um, and so a lot of times insulin can happen on its own with insulin resistance and, and you yeah. know, poor glucose metabolism. And so it may not always relate back to cortisol. You know, the thing that I'm finding, and we've seen this because, so, so our clinic kind of has like, dare I call it, two arms, right? We have this like chronic infection, chronic toxicity, and then we have this hormonal component, which obviously does a lot of infection and toxicity with it. Though it's so common that I see a person that has a stressed system, right? Mm-hmm. Liver stress or gut stress or infection, and they have elevated hemoglobin A1C and elevated glucose. And... And I, I've never seen this in literature. However, it's kind of my guess is, is the body is elevating the glucose numbers because it's just low-hanging fruit as opposed to shoving it in the liver or the muscles. It's like, okay, I don't have any extra energy to mm-hmm. work for this, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep this handy. So then, 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 And then that forces this whole weight loss resistance potentially part that comes with that. Yeah. So um, I like one of the things that that you like, for example, like like ovulation test strips, because then people can like look it on their own. I also am a fan of, if people are running elevated blood glucose, even doing some testing at home, right? Mm-hmm. Some some blood glucose testing to, because you even talked about like that insomnia pattern, like, like yeah, we're curious what the, 
what the cortisol is, but I'm also curious, like, what's the blood glucose? What's going on there? Right. I have a, a few patients, as we, we share, that have GCM, the continuous glucose monitors, mm-hmm. and it's not uncommon that we see midnight, 2, 3, 4 a.m. spikes yeah. of the... Uh, Interesting. So right, and it's, it's relatively inexpensive, right? Even if you go to your local drugstore and just get a glucometer, they're right. eighteen ninety nine type of thing, and, and pennies to test. Absolutely, each yeah. one. Yeah, and it can provide a lot of valuable information, even how your body's responding to different foods throughout the course of the day. You know, you may right. respond really poorly to a banana and really well to a cookie, whereas your neighbor responds completely the opposite. So exactly. Okay, so now let's jump into high cortisol versus low cortisol. What I was taught, and correct me if I'm wrong, I did some training through Dr. Kalish's Institute 10 years ago. The typical appropriate physiological response, right? Like, like I, I tell the story, I used to live in Duluth, Minnesota, and I was out on a trail run, and I literally came across two black bear cubs. <laughs> and so you, you had that response. Where there's cubs, <laughs> yes. there's a mama, right? Yeah. So I looked around and I, and I saw the mama bear and literally like my palms got sweaty, mm-hmm. my pupils got big, and I was like, get the hell out of here, right? Yep. So, so what I was taught was that an elevation of cortisol in an appropriate response is, is appropriate, right? That's the right Absolutely. thing to do. Now, in my case, I got home and it was probably like three hours later that I finally felt myself go, okay, mm-hmm. I'm not bear bait yes. <laughs> today. And then, and then you know, we'd assume that if I if I was measuring my cortisol, that I would see this spike, appropriate spike, right, sympathetic drive, mm-hmm. and then this come down. That's like, all right, dude, like you're gonna live. But then what I've learned is that like a lot of people like mama bears in their living room. Yeah. So what I was taught was that we initially have the ability to produce all this cortisol, and then there comes a point where your body's like, yo, that factory's done. And then we see that drop. So would you agree that we typically would initially would see an elevation? And then if it's burnt out, then we'd see that bottoming out? Yeah, it used to be actually called, you know, phase one, phase two, adrenal fatigue, phase three yes. type of thing. And that's sort of come out of vogue. And now we talk about the whole HPA axis dysfunction. But mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And there's still some data points where we can say, you know, if you've got one point elevated outside of the normal range, it's phase one versus phase two. You know, yeah. we don't really quantify it in that manner anymore, Correct. but you're absolutely right. We start seeing changes in DHEA too, which is sort of the counterpart to cortisol, mm-hmm. where if cortisol is high for a period of time, DHEA is going to drop because it's sort of start, starting to, trying to antagonize cortisol yes. to kind of maintain that balance within the body. Yeah, that's so good. So so if, so if you're listening to this and you've had some of this lab testing done, um, the, I guess the first thing is the numbers know better than the interpretation. And when it comes to a hormone, like cortisol, it also measure depends upon when was the test taken, mm-hmm. right? So truly, I agree with you. The gold standard of cortisol testing is salivary response testing uh, because it's dynamic. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, for those that have had hormones tested through their serum, by the way, it's still the gold standard way to do it. I will also tell you that hormones change 24, 25% in a 24-hour period. So that's a tough thing. So even if you're looking, trying to, you know, and, and not only that, then you have your, your the time of your cycle. Mm-hmm. So if you're a female and you're doing hormone testing and you're trying to like measure apples to apples, that's why, for example, we talk about the luteal phase mm-hmm. uh, of testing. And we also talk about a first morning fasted so that we at least have some consistency. Right. Um, Especially I, important in men too, because you've got this 24 hour production of testosterone where morning time is really the ideal time to get it tested. Interesting. So let's let's talk about the testosterone wheel then for a mm-hmm. second. Um, 
so what time of the day, like what, what happens to testosterone in a day in a typical guy? Testosterone's typically highest during the morning hours and okay. then it starts to fade throughout the course of the day. Uh, women have a 28 day cycle, men have a 24 hour cycle. So to speak. So. so that means I have PMS every single day. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. It. There you have it. <laughs> now, so let's talk about like like um, so. Then is it a per- so like we talk about like having a morning erection? Like mm-hmm. that would be a sign yep. of an appropriate amount of early morning testosterone elevation. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. It's a, absolutely a good thing. Nighttime erections, morning erections. You want to make sure you're maintaining those. Yeah. Okay. It tells so, a lot so about our bodies. Well, not my so, body, your body. Right, true story. <laughs> so, so what happens then is what you're saying is that testosterone peaks throughout the day, um, and then it and then does it fall off like cortisol kind of does? Or? It does. I mean, not in the same significant uh, slope, I would say, as cortisol. Right. But yes, your your testosterone levels are going to be highest in the morning. So we typically try to get it done. Does testosterone, or even I guess, so let's just talk testosterone for a mm-hmm. second. So let's say. That someone's listening to this and they have a healthy relationship and it's and they're going to be intimate. Like, does a man's testosterone change in the anticipation of of connection with their spouse, for example? Potentially. I mean, you get hormones. Um, you may get some change in receptor sites and things like yeah. that, just with the sort of feelings that you have. Changes in neurotransmitters. The neurotransmitters. Yeah. 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 So, that's interesting. It, it would be actually. I haven't done a whole lot of research on that, so it's kind of interesting. Something I might have to look into a little bit more. And I think you know. I mean, it's obviously the the goal is that that healthy healthy marriages have healthy together time, and um, a lot of guys don't talk about how things are below the waist are, are doing. Yeah. So it's it's super common. So if you're a guy and and number one, you're not waking up with with a morning erection, like that's a sign. Like mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a good thing. And there are a ton of medications oh, yeah. that will just smush testosterone. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also tell people that the top things that kill testosterone for guys, uh, and I assume it affects testosterone in women as well, but number one is stress. If you are stressed, your body's like, yo, we're just like not going to go down that pathway. Number two is poor sleep. Uh, you, you Poor sleep is one of the biggest killers of testosterone. And then... Chronic cardio. I see people that are like marathon runners, um, endurance athletes, like super, super low um, testosterone mm-hmm. in guys. Yeah. And, I, and, and respectfully, I was that guy. I did an Ironman triathlon uh, 10, 10 years ago, and I was a hot mess after that. After that, I mean, I looked great per se. I was super skinny. I was actually way too skinny. But my, I was a hormonal, just straight up hot mess. And you felt that. it symptom-wise? Uh, you know... What I felt was, I mean, I had I had boy function, mm-hmm. but what I felt was just a lack of wanting to just go outside and do anything, right? Even though I was an, an endurance athlete, I could go for a you know a thirteen hour race. Yeah. So um, well, it's it interesting you say that because typically that's the last symptom to occur is the lack of erections. Right. So right. a lot yeah. of times I see testosterone two fifty and anything less than three hundred per the American Academy of Urology is low T or hypogonadism. What would you say is is potentially low T for a guy? Well it depends on age. So you okay. know if I'm looking at a sixty five year old and I see a testosterone of four fifty, I'm like, okay, you know, that might that might work for you. Okay. But more and more I'm seeing men come in who are twenty five, thirty who have testosterone levels less than three hundred, right. which is alarming. And they're changing the value from a conventional medicine standpoint based on the trend that we're seeing. So it's not that... So they're dropping it lower. Yeah. It's not that things are, you know, normal. It's just that the trend has changed over time, which is a When you've worked with some of those men, I just talked about some of the things that I've seen clinically. What are some of the 
common denominators in their world that you're like, oh, do you have this or that? Or what are some of the, the common things that you've seen? In terms of symptoms causing low T? Um, lifestyle, exposure. Yeah. Like things that were like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, uh, I would say EMFs. So putting your cell phone in your back pocket is kind of a big no-no because mm-hmm. it's right next to the boy you know parts. the boy parts yeah. that produce the the, the parts or yeah. produce the what you need now, for testosterone. Now, some people think that's all woo-woo, but the research is getting better and better yeah. on on that those frequencies being that close. Absolutely. So. Lack of sun exposure is another one. Um, there is research showing that sunlight, especially in the morning and then again in the afternoon, can help to prime testosterone levels, can help to optimize cortisol levels. Okay. So that one's another one, especially if we're you know working from home inside. We don't leave the house anymore to go yeah, to work. We're totally. just inside the house all yes, day long. Yes, uh, That's a big one. Um, I, I think any sort of stress, physiologic stress, mental stress, emotional stress, mm-hmm. a lot of people say, well, I don't have any different stress than I had a couple years ago, but, you know, my I got a divorce and, you know, all of these things that maybe don't register as physiologic stress, but right. if it's mental, emotional, spiritual, it still counts. And then it accumulates yes. over time, right? So uh, lots of conversation around hormones. There's a lot of buzz, right? I mean, even like in the male hormone world, there are these male hormone replacement clinics on every corner. And I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to say I disagree with what they do. um, But what I will say is not every answer is here's some testosterone, right? You need to take a look. And sometimes, you know, I always say the body responds appropriately to its environment. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if, if you can change the environment, wouldn't that make a heck of a lot more sense than like, Hey, just inject yourself twice a week and and you're good to go. There's a reason that your testosterone is low. It's, it's not that you were given the opportunity to have testosterone replacement therapy, it's why is your testosterone low? How can we fix that problem so that your body can create its own? So true. So true. Okay. Uh, Jumping back into the questions. I I, I promise that each question moving on will not be as long as this first one. Uh, Claire asks, does eating beef liver help combat non-alcoholic fatty liver? And and if not, are are there any other supplement recommendations? Um, Have you, you ever eaten beef, beef liver? You know, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> I've heard of people taking it in a supplement form. Yeah, you know. totally. They, they do like non-desiccated liver. Yeah. Mom, I love you. And yes, I remember eating liver and onions as a little boy. Uh, it's nasty. Yeah. I, I've heard texture-wise. It's just not great either. It's got a very interesting texture to it. And I don't care how many onions and butter you put it into. It's it's just interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be my first choice for combating non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, I'll be honest with you. Right. I don't know. What's your take on it? You know, that's a good question. I think I think the question, because I come from a ranching background, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, okay, like, talk to me about that cow. Yeah. What what right. was that cow exposed to? How, how was that cow raised? Was that cow given antibiotics and growth hormone? Well, how did that cow, how was it, what was? What did it graze on? Was it, did it eat silage and corn all day long? Or was it out on an organic pasture? I mean... Here's, the, here's my catch with people using liver as a supplement. The liver is a detoxification organ. So even if that cow is grass-fed and free-range, it still is exposed to toxicity. And so I guess and I'm sure some people are like, oh, he's crazy. He doesn't know about the whatever supplement. But I know about the liver. Mm-hmm. And I know what the liver does in the body. Right. And, and there's no animal on earth, no cow on earth, that, that is hermetically sealed with, with an unexposed liver. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're dealing with non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome, like you got, you can't be dinking around. Right. Right. So, so, so the first question I would ask is, um, by the way, here's not a supplement for you, but like, why? 
You always, ask, oh, you, have, you always have to ask why. Why do you have non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome? What's going on? Why is your liver responding that way, right? And in our world, we look at infection, we look at toxicity, uh, we look at things like leaky gut, we look at hormone imbalance. So you have to start there. Yep. Because here's the scoop. If you are full of infection or you have chronic Lyme disease or Epstein-Barr virus and you take, I don't care what supplement you take. Like for example, we love Advanced Tudka, mm -hmm. amazing product. We like KL support. We like other things. If you're taking those all the while while your liver is still dealing with this burden, you are putting a bandaid on a bullet wound mm -hmm. all day long. Right. right. So that that's my take all the time. And in this world, don't get me wrong, and, and, and God bless you guys, you want the simple fix, and you, if there's an easy answer, give me the easy answer. Yet, it's not. it doesn't work that way. Right. Especially when you understand the liver. Mm -hmm. Now, if we talk about the liver in regards to hormones, now we could teach a weekend seminar, <laughs> right, about estrogen and progesterone utilization and downstream estrogen metabolize. Mm -hmm. So even, even, so the, you have to, so number one, I guess, how do you know you have non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome? To my knowledge, isn't it a liver biopsy that is the definitive diagnosis of that? I think ultrasound can give you some some, some, some guidance okay. there too. But I, to, to definitively, yes, I would say yeah. it's a biopsy. And I don't think they're they're doing a whole lot of liver biopsies to diagnose that right. these days. Now, there are good labs, right? Like albumin, globumin, AST, ALT, alkaline phosphatase, triglycerides. These are all things that will tell us like what's going on with the liver. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that the liver is getting some attention finally. Yeah. Um, uh, and 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 I think I've always I've said for years, and I'll I'll say it until till I go home that it is the most overworked, underpaid organ in the body mm -hmm. all day long. So so I guess um, we do use supplementation when the time is appropriate. Uh, we do use things like coffee enemas. We're going to talk about those in a little bit. Uh, though ultimately, why is your liver stressed? What's going on in your system? that your liver is actually responding appropriately. So, um, and then supplements. So let's say that we're working with someone and we're, we're doing the work and it's, and we need, and now we know that we are actually going to support it because we're addressing the why. So what are some of the top things on your supplement list that you like for liver support? Well, my favorite is advanced Tudka. I think it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, it, we use Cellcore products and that one's got some great drivers in it, like melatonin. I actually just had a conversation about Tudka with somebody. They said, well, is Cellcore the best one out there? And I said, well, as far as I know, it's really yeah. the best one that has all the evidence to really show that it does what it's intended to do. But, you know, obviously you want to thin the bile. You've got every drop of blood filtered through that liver three, mm -hmm. every three to six minutes. So exactly. you want to make sure that you're supporting that liver. Um, the other one that I'd mention, and this is just general detox, um, is... Uh, doing a lymph massage. So making sure that your lymph system is flowing because mm -hmm. your lymph is like your sewage system. So if you want your liver to work, you want to make sure your lymph is also flowing. Okay. Um, so that's a big one. We use kale support as well. That's another great one. Yeah. Um, milk thistle. Um, those are some of the big ones that I can think of. So let's, before I get to the next one, w without like giving us a full on demonstration, yeah. explain what a lymph massage is. That's a really great question. So your lymph, like I said, is like a sewage system. So imagine, um, you know, you've got sewer water in your body and mm -hmm. or, or lake water. And if mm -hmm. anything is stagnant for too long, you can develop grossness in there, for lack of better words, right? So uh, you want to make sure it's moving. And in order to do that, you actually have to kind of put your hands on your body. Now, you can use things like dry brushing. You can use things like contrast showers. 
But the way that you actually put your hands on your body is really important because your lymph system is also in sort of like a pump fashion and you want to make sure you're Mm -hmm. draining it the correct correct way. So you always go uh, sort of up and out. So you start here at the collarbone. This is about where 85% of your lymph drains in. So you want to make sure you're really spending a lot of time. the thoracic duct? The thoracic duct, yeah. Cool. Yep. So this is supraclavicular and subclavicular. So you've got your clavicle here up and, and, and below it. And then you want to really work on both of those sides. And then you want to go up. So right behind your jawbone here is the other lymph nodes that's really big. Again, two-thirds of your lymph nodes are above your shoulders here. So you really want to make sure that you're moving all your lymph. Your glymphatic system is in your brain. A lot of people with brain fog, they have a big problem with stagnant lymph. Um, And then you want to go to your axilla, so your armpits, really. And you can vary your pressure. Move hard, move soft, you know, hit the area. So is it just like, so like over your prodiglans? glands, is it... Like you're you're milking those things. You or? can, yeah, okay. you can. I mean, and again, it's just get it going. Just move just it. Give us just help. however it is, and it's really behind the jawbone here. So okay, this so it's one not, right it's back not here. on the cheek. It's behind. Correct. It's yeah. behind the jaw. Okay. And you can kind of push things through. I mean, whatever feels comfortable, right? Okay. So then we move to the axilla, and then we move to the belly. Nobody touches the belly. The right? Yeah. Even when you're in a massage, nobody touches that. But yeah. you've got sixty percent of your lymph and your immune system yes. and all of this stuff yes, kind yes, of lives yes. in there. And your liver actually makes, I think it's about 50% of your lymph fluid as well. So, um, oh, that's yeah. awesome. So, so then moving down into the um, inguinal. So this is right kind of at the crease of your legs and then behind the knees. And that's six, six spots. That is so interesting. I love that. And, and how often should a person address those areas? I recommend daily, not too much too fast, just because it can induce sort of like a Herxheimer reaction. So a little okay. bit of that detox reaction. Yeah. Um, but once a day, and then if you feel like you're moving and grooving, you can try for twice a day. Some people like doing it in the morning because it gives them energy, mental clarity, focus. Some people like doing it at night because it helps with sleep. So, But it costs a lot. Yes. Super so expensive. <laughs> at time, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what people sometimes forget about the low-hanging fruit, the easy things that are free, that work. Um, so, yeah, lymphatic massage, clutch part of just self-care, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take much time. It's interesting um, because I have a physical medicine background that's really strong as well. Like you talked about like the back of the knee, the popliteal fossa. And I will tell you that the no- in, in my history, I used to travel the pro rodeo circuit and work with all kinds of professional athletes. The number one area where I would see ankle and knee dysfunction is in that area. So now I'm like, I wonder how much of that was stagnant lymphatic tissue yeah. as opposed to a dysfunctional popliteus muscle, for example. I just saw a woman with lymph nodes the size of golf balls. What? And yeah, they're huge. And it, she's got brain fog and anxiety, and her whole body just feels like it's tight. And I said, we got to move that lymph. Whoa. So, yeah, I mean, it's low-hanging fruit that I think everybody should start with. Again, okay. if you've got... So essentially, you've got this interstitial fluid that sits right next to the cell. And if that's dirty swamp water, right, nothing is going to get into that cell. So, so we can true. give you all the supplements in the world... And nothing is going to get to those if you've got all of this problematic lymph fluid that's hanging out. It's also why we want to move. Yes. Right? Like, this is why why movement is so, so important. Mm -hmm. Like, go for a walk. Um, And breathing. Breathing is the biggest pump you have in your body, your diaphragm. I I could go into a whole spiel about the right side of the diaphragm and the liver. And I think there's a lot to that, right? Like, we are designed to move. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so lymphatic drainage, lymphatic massage... Um, that's clutch. I like that. Okay. Let's talk about putting coffee up your butt for a second here. (laughs) Uh, so I have been a student of coffee enemas for about 15 years now. 
Uh, I was formally trained in the Gershon cancer method about 15 years ago. Uh, by the way, we do not treat cancer patients in our practice. It's not our specialty. Though one of the things that I gathered from Dr. Gershon was the importance of the liver and how he utilized coffee enemas inside of that. So the question is, won't using a coffee enema strip my gut, my gut rather, of good bacteria? I've been trying to rebuild my gut flora with probiotics. What would you say to that person? Well, I'm going to turn it back over to the to the <laughs> coffee enema king over yeah. here. That's a good question, and I and I and I have had that question multiple times right now. So here's the thing to understand: a coffee enema is not like a three liter fleet enema. You're only putting like one to four cups tops of coffee up your butt. So you have to understand that you have pounds of bacteria that are way further up your intestinal tract. So um, now, if you started doing like two gallon coffee enemas, yeah, you, you could totally uh, clean out your, your, your world. The, the catch though is they don't. And, and a lot of people think more is better, but you have to understand that the the hemorrhoid vein uh, comes into the descending colon only, the descending colon only about four or five inches from the exit point. And the benefit of the coffee enema is the exposure of palmitic acid and caffeine to the hemorrhoid vein. So anything more than that is no good. So I had a patient, um, one of my patients from, from Canada, she's just a peanut. And she's like, Dr. Greg, your video said do four cups, but I really can't hold it in there that long. I'm like, girl. You're just a peanut. You're just itty bitty. So, so, so I have her doing just a cup, and she's like, "Oh, that's a heck of a lot easier for my body." Now, with with the conversation of of uh, inoculating a gut, this is kind of like two questions in one. Uh, probiotics are a great way. The question, though, without my catch, always with probiotics is this: Does it get to the gut, and is it live, and does it have the prebiotic to give it the fuel that it needs to proliferate? So now I am not condoning this on this video. Remember, these videos are just for entertainment purposes and not medical advice, though I have had several people like post colonoscopy do probiotic enemas hmm. to re-inoculate the gut. I actually learned this, um, man, many years ago, we had a, we had a patient, uh, a little girl actually, that after a pretty heavy dose of antibiotics because, because of, a, of a sickness, she started to have seizures. Oh, wow. And, and my pea-sized brain was like, hey, like her gut is sterile. And we actually did a, a probiotic enema, and her seizures were done. Wow. Isn't that crazy? What age do you typically start recommending coffee enemas, or does it kind That's of That's a good question. Me? So, okay, putting coffee up your butt, like, takes some mental fortitude. Mm -hmm. And it's, it doesn't hurt, or it's not, right. but, but, like, it's, it's uncomfortable for some people. So... There's not really a magic age, but it's really, so if we're going to go young, it has to be a, like, let's say it's a kid, like at least middle schooler, if not older, you have to understand like their level of mental capacity. Like, do they understand what they're doing and do they understand why they're doing it? And, and are they with free will like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. Just talk me through it. Or is it being done against the will right. or do they have to do it? I mean, I had a patient, I talked about this guy along a lot. I had a patient 10 plus years ago. He's like, Dr. Greg, I'm not going to do him. And I was like, don't you want to get well? Like, what the heck? And he came back and he's like, Dr. Greg, I just, I, I just want to talk more about that with you. He said, I was sexually abused as a little boy by an uncle. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. So there are, there is unquestionably the possibility of extenuating circumstances. Now, 
as nice as I can say this and as loving of a tone as I can say this, if you're like, yeah, I kind of don't want to do that, then I kind of want to wonder like, how motivated are you to get well? Mm-hmm. Because I don't have, a, I guess I do have a pen here. This is how big the thing is that goes up your butt. Okay. So if you're like, oh, I mean, hopefully your poops are bigger than this. <laughs> You know, so it's not like it's not like you're it's going to damage things or whatnot. Yet, if you've had if you've had trauma, I I, I get that. But I do not believe that um, the coffee enema will um, sterilize a gut like a gallon of go lightly would do so or or a big probiotic um, or antibiotic regime. So so that would be my my take on that. The second question would be, can I do coffee enemas if I am breastfeeding? I say go for it. Yeah, I here's my kind, of, and, and I'm I try to be, I try to be kind of like a little cautious in some of those things. Mm-hmm. So so sometimes the lawyer has to talk, and then yeah. and then the the old cowboy doctor gets to talk a little bit. So what I typically tell women that that are nursing is if you've done coffee enemas prior to nursing or prior to pregnancy and you were good with it, then there's no reason mm-hmm. to say no. Now. If you've never done a, anything that looks like a coffee enema and now all of a sudden you're breastfeeding and you're like, hey, I think I want to try this. Like, what else are you trying? Like, what are some other tools that you're using? The reality, though, if but and you start if you're going to do this, you have to start super low, like half a cup. Yeah. Um, then also, if you're nursing, pay attention to your little peanut. Right. If you do a coffee enema and now your kid is screaming through the night. <laughs> What, sure. Unfortunately, what's happened then, and it's possible but rare, is that for whatever reason you've probably expressed something through your breast milk that's gotten into your into your into your baby, and then they're they're responding inappropriately. So I would say that. However, the longer I've been in medicine and the more I've been around, my wife, by God's grace, nursed all of our babies. It is amazing how the women's body can give that baby exactly what it needs. Yep. I've even changed my take a little bit on like, let's say someone taking like a, a small antiparasitic when nursing. Like, because here's a scoop. If mom has parasites, yeah. the baby's got parasites. Uh-huh. So like, oh no, don't, don't take that and nurse your baby because I, the doctor, know exactly what your baby needs. Like, what if the mom's body, like what if we gave the mom a small dose of a, an antiparasitic and what if the body is like, I'm going to give my mom a dose of this to my baby through the breast milk. Mm-hmm. So I've even, I've changed my, t- my tone a little bit in regards to nursing mommies and, and like a little bit of anti-pathogenic work. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, maybe I'm just getting old. No, I, I mean, I think it's amazing what the body can do. Even, you know, when kids are sick, your body makes antibodies to create breast milk designed for that child, which is just, I mean, it blows my mind when you think about it in that, in right. that way. Right. So, and I mean, we, cool. we now know that when, when the saliva of the baby hits the areola of mama's breast, the innate intelligence of the mom alters the bio makeup, the macronutrients, the micronutrients, the immunoglobulins of her breast milk to give her baby exactly what she needs. Now, I get, and this is not a conversation of condemning um, bottle-fed babies. Like, I get it. It's not that conversation. However, I will unapologetically say on the record that nothing matches mama's milk. Ever so, um, and the connection. I mean, my wife. Right. Um, other than getting bit, I guess, which I'm sure every <laughs> every mom has probably experienced that at Been some point in time. Like, whoa, hey, no, 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 don't do that. So, okay, so that's coffee enemas while breastfeeding. Let's talk about osteoarthritis. Obviously, an inflammatory component. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we see a lot of that because a lot of our patients are perimenopausal or menopausal. And osteoarthritis is a real thing, right? Mm-hmm. It is a real risk. And, and, and I'll say this before I hand it off to you. You cannot take a calcium supplement and expect to have strong bones. Right. It's the same as taking creatine and expect to get big muscles. <laughs> like there has to be a, a, an activity that happens inside of that. But in regards to perimenopausal and postmenopausal females, talk about osteoarthritis. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty common. And I would say even more than calcium, vitamin D for, mm-hmm. for bones. Mm-hmm. But we do see it a lot. And there's a lot of estrogen effects that happen with the bones and the, and the joints and the lubrication within the joints as estrogen starts to wane a little bit. Um, and so we find that using a little bit of estrogen, whether it's in a cream form, in a sublingual form, um, combined with you know some light weight-bearing activity really does help to benefit women who are experiencing uh, osteoarthritis-type symptoms. And then also, while we're on the topic of that, even osteoporosis, we know that that's right. such a significant right. impactor of, of women's health and longevity. Um, and so estrogen is a huge benefit for that piece of it too, along with, of course, vitamin D and weight-bearing activity. So. One of the things that I really have loved that I've learned from you in regards to perimenopausal women or postmenopausal women and estrogen and then like Dutch testing is we, we do know that there are like, if you're a listener, you, you've heard of estrogen dominant diseases. Like they're a very real thing, right? Like many breast cancers and ovarian cancers and uterine cancers can have a, a, a very, even breast cancer in men, that's kind of a not talked about thing. Mm-hmm. It's real though. So there's this huge conversation of how are you processing estrogen? So what you just said is, hey, estrogen is beneficial for postmenopausal women. And then I just said, hey, you can have estrogen-dominant diseases. So the Dutch test comes into play to ask how the body is processing that estrogen. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about the tools that we have clinically is if that person is a aromatizer or they're a bad processor, we can actually divert the the, the, the processing or the aromatization of that estrogen so they can both get the benefits from estrogen but then not become an estrogen-dominant disease person. The thing that, 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 that got me, though, is um, actually giving some women a little bit of estrogen to see what they do with it. Because I think a lot of... I, I, I am going to go on the record to say I believe that a lot of women that are... Um, even that even do Dutch testing... Don't even ask the question like, hey, here's some estrogen. What are you going to do with it? So walk me through the importance of how to do a proper Dutch test on a perimenopausal or a postmenopausal female. Yeah, so there's a couple options. You know, obviously you can do one without any sort of hormone replacement therapy and just see how your body's processing estrogens. We can still see how your body kind of metabolizes estrogen down what I call the good, the bad, or the ugly pathway. And obviously the ugly pathway, you're putting yourself at more risk for developing DNA damage, which then can lead to breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and and that piece of it, uh, and just oxidative stress in general. Um, But then the other way that we could potentially look at things is by starting you on a little bit of hormones. So again, I like to balance estrogen with progesterone. Mm -hmm. So I typically do the combination of the two and then doing a Dutch test, let's say three or four weeks down the road to see how your body is utilizing that estrogen. Now, there are a couple nuances to that. If you're using sublingual estrogen, we have to be really careful with the salivary samples that you're not um, or and or the urinary samples that you're not contaminating that piece of it. But um, but it does provide us a lot of insight into how your body's utilizing it so we can make sure that, you know, if we need to use things like 
DIM or indo 3 carbon, all these are things from cruciferous vegetables to kind of push estrogen down the more beneficial pathway um, or kind, kind of dial back the estrogen uh, amounts that we're giving or in, make changes to it. We're right. able to do that sort of on the fly given the... So, you, so it didn't sound like you said that both are possible. Mm -hmm. Does one give you clinically better information? Um, you know, if someone wants to do hormone replacement therapy, I'd say let's do both. So we do one at the beginning and then we do one, you know, mid, mid, uh, once we start the hormone replacement therapy. So, so, you, can... so you do one of each, mm -hmm. one without, yep. how are you all by yourself? Yep. And then down the road, how do, how are you doing with a little bit of. Correct. And, and we can still see, I mean, if your body has, so a lot of times we can see genetic, what we call polymorphism. So if mm -hmm. you've got any sort of genetic variation with um, something called the CYP3A4. We can mm -hmm. see how your body's kind of processing estrogen based on that. So right. it gives us some insight into just genetically how you're predisposed to process estrogen. Right. And then with what are you doing? What are you doing with your current level of estrogen? We all have a little bit. We can kind of see some patterns just based on that. Yeah, definitely. Typically we see a less than 10 number yeah. on the lab and from the serum standpoint. Cool. Well, hold that thought. Let's let's take a little break for a uh, commercial break, and we'll be back for with a few more questions. This podcast is sponsored by Life Boost Coffee. Clean, organic, and non-toxic ingredients are important for your health, and Life Boost Coffee is no exception. Go to coffeewithdoc.com to receive 50% off your first order. That's coffeewithdoc.com. Hi, everyone. This is Ben, one of Dr. Greg's producers. We appreciate you tuning into The Daily Dose with Dr. Greg. We're so grateful for every single one of our listeners, and we know that our audience is expanding all over the world. If you are interested in working with Dr. Greg, Emily Anderson, or Vitae Clinic, all you have to do is click the link in this episode's show notes. We want to bring people as much value as possible. So if you personally enjoyed this episode, please, please share it with your friends and family. Also, we welcome your comments, feedback, and questions on any of our social media platforms. Feel free to reach out anytime. All that said, let's hop back into today's conversation with Dr. Greg and Emily Anderson. All right, guys, we are back, and I'm back here with, with Emily Anderson, our, our, our hormone wizard, like I like to call her, in our clinic here in, in Minnesota. By the way, if you guys are, if you're interested to be a patient of ours, we literally treat, here's a shameless plug for ourselves, we treat people all, all over the nation here. We have the ability to um, order labs, and, and especially if people want to do hormone-specific work, uh, there are some laws that we are governed by. Um, we get to play by the rules, but we have people that, that fly in and, and see us, and then it, respectfully, the, the rule is, and it, depend, it can change depending on when you're listening to this podcast, um, if you if Emily sees you in person for once, the current law states that she can manage you and, and prescribe or unprescribe for the course of a year. So if for some cases, it's been a huge blessing to have that uh, at, at people's uh, beck and call from that standpoint. So let's jump back in and let's talk about this is a question from Barb. Barb, poor thing, says, I have Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, gallstones, heavy periods, fibroids and tons of estrogen. Where does this come from and how can I help flush estrogen? Yeah, it's a really good question. So there's really two ways or, or two things I'll t talk about. The first one is too much estrogen in. So is that coming in the form of endocrine disruptors? So things like plastics, phthalates, artificial fragrances, okay. um, and or is it poor detoxification? So is your body not able to get rid of it? And a lot of that getting rid of it process, we talked about the Dutch test and how important that is. We can see a lot of it on there. 
Um, so we talk about liver, we talk about gut. Again, if your gut, if you've got any sort of dysbiosis, you actually have something in your gut called your estrobilome. So it's essentially how your body is processing estrogen and that piece of it. And so with gut dysbiosis, you can have higher levels of something called beta-glucuronidase. And this is an enzyme that sort of goes in and acts like scissors to break up estrogen from its binding protein so that when you're supposed to be getting rid of it via your stool, uh, you're actually reabsorbing it mm -hmm. in the gut. So mm -hmm. you can see a lot of estrogen reabsorption that in that pattern. Um, so we kind of want to, through testing, we can see whether it's too much estrogen in or not enough estrogen out. So let's go back and give Barb, let's break down some of those big words. So where would Barb have plastics in her day-to-day -day use? Well, I think the statistic is, in, don't we like eat a credit card per week or something like that? Oh my that? gosh. <laughs> I feel like it's That's it's crazy. that. I mean, anything in, in food that you're eating. I mean, I, I try to avoid any sort of plastic food containers where you're especially heating things up in that. Yeah, definitely no, no. If you're, do not microwave yeah. in plastic. I'm not a fan of microwaves anyway, yeah. but for sure not in plastic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So avoiding plastics there. Um uh, we talked a little bit about the phthalates and fragrances, so like candles, the plug-ins, um, okay. anything artificially scented, try to get rid of it, replace it with things like essential oils. So so the things scents. that you're putting in your vents, in your yeah. car, right. the plug-in scent stuff, fabric softeners mm -hmm. that are scented, anything that has artificial fragrance, even a lot of perfumes yeah. are just nasty. Yeah. So endocrine disruptors is yeah. what they're called. And some of them can act as fake estrogens or something mm -hmm. called phyto or xenoestrogen rather and and come in and push that so we test um, for parabens too i see a lot of methylparaben come through that's things in cosmetics lotions soaps hair care products um, makeup it's so. got to be tough to find healthy i mean it's getting easier i'm sure yeah than it was 10 years ago um let's just go there for a second like mm -hmm. like what's what's your go-to place to find stuff for your skin that isn't going to crush your estrogen. I have two. So the Environmental Working Group has an amazing app where yes. they actually have a barcode scanner. You can take it to the store with you. You can scan the barcodes before you buy it so you know whether okay. it's good or not based on their rating. And then the other one is Yucca. Um, that one's another really great one. It's got a barcode scanner so you can kind of do the same thing. You can manually input it, but it gives you the score based on like a zero to a hundred score so right. you can see how, how green it is. And there's so much greenwashing nowadays. I mean, you see these labels, it's like no sulfates, no parabens, but then on the back you see like phenoxyethanol, which is another not great one. Exactly. And so all these things that they're trying to... So finesse. realistically, if someone walks into Ulta or Walmart or Target and they start scanning stuff, are they going to be like, oh? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's to the point where, I mean, you know, Target is starting to kind of carry some of the more, because it's something that I think is more talked about now. Right. So you can find some of the better brands. I mean, okay. they're not perfect, but as long as you're going a little better, I'm good with that. I know. Right? Like little there's, bits. there's this, there's this thought that if it's not perfect, it's all bad. Mm -hmm. And what if it's just a little bit better than it was? Absolutely. Right. So there's a, there's a lot to that. So progress, not perfection. Right? Progress, not perfection. <laughs> Angie Song from Instagram asks us, how long can someone be on estrogen replacement therapy? That is a great question. And again, I think it all depends on how you're monitoring your estrogen therapy. If you are just doing estrogen alone, I would say make sure you're also taking progesterone 
because mm-hmm. those two are very much a balance. Estrogen, I kind of refer to as the gas pedal, whereas progesterone is the brake, and you don't want a car without a brake, right? right? So you want to make sure that you're balancing the two of those and then also testing appropriately. So you want to make sure that you're really Dutch testing and not just serum testing yes. because it doesn't give you all the information about how your body is processing these. Okay. Um, I've seen women who who have been on estrogen therapy for a long time, have never run a Dutch test, and we run it, and it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is happening, right? And this has been happening for this long, and it's putting you at a higher risk of potential DNA damage. So, um, And I've met women who say, I will will die of cancer before I go off of this hormone therapy Mm -hmm. because it makes me feel so good. So I think it's really just independent of of how you feel on it and and how what it's doing for your body. There are so many benefits to estrogen therapy combined with progesterone that I say – do it until you can't do it anymore. Right, right. So, and some people are kind of like super naturally minded. They're like, "Oh, I don't want it because it's a prescription, and therefore it's it's not good or it's synthetic." Could you speak to those peeps a bit, maybe? Yeah. Well, and I typically use a bioidentical progesterone. So what that means is you've got sort of this lock and key receptor site in your body where okay. estrogen binds into that receptor, and so the bioidentical fits into that lock and key receptor site just like your own does versus synthetic, which kind of goes in and jams the lock and creates a whole host of other potential side effects. So that's where bioidentical, you know, it uses things like um, uh, Mexican wild yam and these other things that are more naturally occurring. And it is compounded at a compounding pharmacy, but that doesn't mean that it's, you know, a prescription synthetic medication. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the, misconception is because it comes from a compounded pharmacy that it's like some chemistry makeup set. Not necessarily. The catch though, what we've found is like even like take DHEA, for example, a a product from a compounded pharmacy is typically way more effective than the DHEA that you'd find on a vitamin shelf Mm -hmm. because there's a purity, there's a consistency of dosaging, there's just so many uh, stability. There's a lot of things that come into that. Absolutely. Cool. Well, there you have it. So, um, I think the thing that's important is when people say estrogen replacement therapy, we're really talking about hormone replacement therapy because there's there's more than just estrogen Mm -hmm. in this game. And you have to be looking at testosterone. You have to look at progesterone. You have to look at estrogen. And and then what I also tell people is it's not just based upon the test. So the science of the Dutch test is that test says this, but then the art is in the journey. And it's you saying to that patient, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. How are you feeling? How's your mood? How's your skin? How's your libido? How's your mind? All of those things factor into because the art talks about how you can move those things around knowing what we're up against. So uh, that's where um, we don't just like, hey, take this and let's talk in six months. Absolutely. Like that doesn't fly no. uh, from that standpoint. So, all right. Well, there you have it. Hey, um, always a fun chat yeah, with you. Yeah, always fun. It's always good to be down here. So if you are not already following Emily, uh, on social, she is at um, Hormonal House Calls, and we'll link that in the show notes. There, I think she just hit a thousand followers Woo-hoo. on was it TikTok or Instagram? Which <laughs> one, one of the two? One of the two, yeah. uh, which is awesome, right? That means That's... that that you have the ear of people, and that there's there's Amazing. some things going there. So so go and follow. There's a lot of cool things. I think didn't you just shoot a video about like some house swaps or I something? I did, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. House swaps to swap out endocrine disrupting agents, and I did one on some cosmetics too. So yeah. Cool stuff over there. There you go. So tons of information uh, for yourselves inside of that. So Emily, have a great day. Thank you.